This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go! Hello, and welcome back to Fintech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson, creator of Fintech Takes, and we have a very special episode today. Um, I'm joined, as always, by Jason Mikula. Jason, how's it going? It is uh, going pretty well. And uh, as Alex mentioned, we're breaking from our usual format, you know, that we like to recap our favorite big, weird, quirky news stories. Uh, But this is actually part two of a two-part episode. So if you missed part one, you need to flip over to the uh, FinTech Layer Cake podcast, listen to that, subscribe to it, smash that subscribe button, and then come back here. So pause, do that. Okay. And that means, of course, that Reggie Young and Matt Janaga from Lithic are here to continue the conversation we started. Reggie, Matt, for listeners that might not know you or Lithic, do you want to give us a very quick introduction? Why don't we start with you, Reggie? Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for having us on. It's uh, oh, been fun to do the first episode. I'm excited to do this one. Um, so I'm Reggie Young. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Reggie C. Young. I am a lawyer here at Lithic, tend to focus on product and regulatory. So yeah, Lithic, uh, modern card issuer. If you want to issue cards insanely fast, come talk with us. And I'm Matt Janiga. You can find me on Twitter at Regulatory Nerd. And I'm the outgoing general counsel of Lithic. Uh, currently, as we tape this, I'm wrapping up and transitioning. Uh, I will be moving to Trustly soon to help with their payments and regulatory and policy work. And uh, love Lithic, but also I'm excited to not have to commute to the New York City office on a regular basis. I've got two little kids for folks who don't know. And the Trustly office is about a 30-minute drive from my house. So I'm excited to kind of change that in and stay more in California. If you have young kids, uh, you'll completely understand Matt's point. And if you don't, then you'll have no idea what he's talking about, uh, which is totally fine. But Matt, congratulations on the move. That's really exciting. And um, yeah, thanks both of you for joining us on this part two of the podcast. Um, Jason, I think we have a whole bunch of fun topics lined up to sort of continue our conversation of the collision of fintech and different regulatory priorities. Um, I think our theme generally for today is competition and the many unintended consequences that can come from encouraging competition from a regulatory lens. So do you want to take us into our first area? Yeah, I mean, where else could we start besides the Durban Amendment and interchange? It feels like, in many regards, the higher interchange rate provided by Durban-exempt banks feels responsible for something like 90% of fintech on most days. It's actually always very interesting when I tell Americans that here in the EU, interchange on debit is capped at 20 bips. And actually, in the Netherlands, this may be changing as we go to MasterCard. But with Maestro, I want to say it's like a flat two or three cents per transaction, which always kind of like explodes people's brains. But now, I mean, Durban and Dodd-Frank is something like 12, 13 years ago, we're seeing some renewed attention to the topics of interchange, particularly from you know legislators, regulators, as well as merchants who uh, I feel like they might have an interest here in not wanting to pay such high card processing fees. I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways we can explore this topic. I think perhaps starting somewhat backward looking, you know, my, and I'll admit I was not in banking when Dodd-Frank was passed, so I didn't have a contemporaneous experience of the discussion around the Durban Amendment. You know, the, the way that a lot of folks talk about it in retrospect was around, you know, holding down calls for payment processing with the idea that these savings would be passed along to consumers in the form of lower prices. It's not really my impression from reading the academic literature that actually happened at all. But we've had a whole host of other 
perhaps intended, perhaps unintended consequences. So the theme competition, how has the Durban Amendment supported or not been supportive of competition? I mean, Alex, should we start it off with you before kicking to our special guests? Yeah, I mean, just I'll give one really quick thought, which is to your point, and Jason wasn't in banking at the time because he was that was his rock band phase, right? Like you were Peace Corps volunteer phase. Slash rock band. Peace Corps volunteer was the name <laughs> of the rock <laughs> right, band. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So go back and find it on Spotify. It's there if you dig it up. So, I mean, I think to your point, it didn't have uh, the sort of stated consequence, I think, that um, people were trying to get out of it. I remember the discussion around, yeah, this is going to end up going back into consumers' pockets, the form of lower prices. Shocked, I say, to discover that corporations don't work that way and just pass savings along when they don't have to. And I think that, you know, to your point, you know, the interesting part of it really came out of, you know, essentially, and I read a piece about this recently, like these are all profit pools, right? And when you make them bigger or smaller, or you restrict them to certain companies, different things will happen. Certain business models won't make sense anymore. Certain fee structures might appear in place in order to make up revenue. And you just you kind of get a really good sense of exactly which business models make sense, or don't make sense when you start to tug on these different profit pools. And obviously, there's lots of different examples. But I don't know, Matt, Reggie, any particular sort of historical things you like to poke at when you think about the Durban Amendment? I know Matt will have a, a lot of thoughts here, because I think he lived through a bit of the Durban Amendment more closely than, than I've touched it. I think the like, first thought is Durban, it's funny, Durban Amendment is often used as this shorthand for capping interchange rates, but it's there's a lot more to it, and I think that often gets glossed over. Like Sometimes you'll occasionally hear conversation with the routing rules, which has become more of a thing lately. But there's a ton of other provisions like prohibitions on card networks providing like financial incentives to like, like one card network can't say we'll pay you X to only work with us. There's like a ton of other pages in the Durban Amendment that don't get discussed. And so when you're talking about the Durban Amendment competition effects, like there's a ton of it's a multifaceted analysis that's kind of almost like impossible to suss out. But I think there are some common themes. And I think looking at the actual competitive effects of it. I mean, the, I'll do the classic lawyer answer. It depends how you're looking at whose point of view you're looking from. Like, if you're a big bank competing against other big banks that are all not Durban exempt, like, in a sense, it levels the playing field. And so it kind of, like, takes interchange competition off the table as a technique to compete. But if you're a big bank competing against smaller Durban exempt banks, <laughs> then it, uh, it suddenly, like, feels like as a big bank, you lost a competitive edge and community banks gained a competitive edge. So I think there's kind of like what point of view, big bank, small bank, there's also like card network, like from one sense, you know, card networks, similar to the big bank perspective, if their ability to kind of toy with directly or indirectly interchange rates changes, like that's a competitive tool that's taken away from them. But it also kind of levels the playing field. So if you're not the biggest card network, maybe that's something you like. So I think there's it's a multifaceted, complicated question. It, it, yeah, it kind of depends on whose point of view you're looking from. Yeah. And for listeners who aren't watching us on video, Alex has put on his Durban exempt cap. Uh, shout out the uh, This Week in Fintech crew for the nice merch. But that's why Reggie laughed as he was giving his answers because I distracted him with my cool hat. That's right. It also means Alex is under $10 billion. So Alex, uh, condolences on the size of your net worth. I am. Yeah. No, that's true. That's I like by far of the four of us. I'm the one who's like, beneath and i might actually stay here it's like it's nice under 10 billion it's nice i am also under 10 billion dollars in net worth for folks who are curious um i won't venture on reggie or, or jason because they might be over i beef with durban and reggie's right i lived through it i was on capitol hill we were doing dodd frank in the house nobody's talking about durban and then it gets pulled out in the middle of the night during the conference committee between the senate and the house along with a couple other things like the volcker amendment and uh, Blanche Lincoln did something where swap dealers couldn't be FDIC insured, which for small regional banks was a huge functional issue. And nobody like debated or talked about any of these things. They just had to like whip them out last minute and slap them in the bill. And then they got passed into law. My beef with Durban is that if you really want to drive competition, the two network routing rule is great, but the price caps are stupid. And if you take a look at it, you know, it's been really interesting. The price caps have allowed on some level 
you know, neobanks to pop up. If you look at Square Cash, Venmo, Chime, you know, they all have card programs that kind of drive a lot of things. In some cases, there was a fumbling of execution where I think, especially if you look at Chime, they haven't quite figured out how to get to other products yet, which is why, you know, they're having the revenue issues. They're not ready to IPO. The market's not ready either for them to IPO, but, you know, something that they need to work at and figure out. And I think if you look at the smaller neobanks, right, they're having kind of the same struggle. That initial burst of interchange was super great. You can build a good critical mass. You can kind of get to break even with a small team. But if you really want to hit scale and you want to be public or you want to get large enough where it makes sense to get a banking charter, right? And Jason, you've been writing some great things about Vero and about how you know they don't make sense. Their evaluation doesn't make sense. Their revenue model doesn't make sense. It's hard to be interchange only. And so the interchange caps were a gift for smaller competitors for a while. But the interesting thing is, I think there's been regulatory capture by the largest banks. You know, I think the Fed would say, no, you know, Matt, you're crazy. But if you take a look at some of the things like the large banks in the clearinghouse and some of the large law firms have been going in for a while now, right, complaining about things like Square Cash and PayPal and saying, hey, those cards shouldn't be Durban exempt, because actually there's more than 10 billion sitting behind them if you take a look at the MSB entity, which I don't believe in, but I understand why they're making that argument, because it's the best argument they have to weaken competitors that are getting really good traction with consumer customers, right? PayPal and Square represent threats. Chime represents a threat you know, to their business models, especially the smaller banks that can't move as quickly kind of in the tech side. So that's why I think that the price caps are kind of stupid. And it's interesting because when I was at Capital One, you know, the sentiment there, and this was like 2011, the sentiment there was that the Senate actually had enough votes to flip Durban. And I think Republicans controlled the House at the time. And so they were looking to undo Durban. And for whatever reason, due to the procedural quirks of the Senate, they never got the undoing of the price caps through. I also think it's pretty silly that they're looking at trying to tinker around or doing these weird carve outs where, okay, now you've got to do a second credit network. And but it's only for issuers above 100 billion, but that's just too small. I think if you were going to open it up and say everybody has to have a second credit network, that would make a lot more sense. And the thing that I'm really eager to see is somebody sees the dual network routing requirement, somebody like a PayPal, like a Square, and I think Square is probably the furthest ahead on it, or a Stripe, and come out and say, here's our competing debit network. And we've assembled the grouping of merchants where we can make that feasible. And I think Square is probably farthest ahead because I do I, they overpaid for Afterpay in the current market. But if you look at it in the long term, it's their bridge between their two ecosystems. And they've integrated, I think, Square Cash as a payment method into Audion. And so unlike PayPal, they're not precious about like this closed walled garden. So I beef with Durban. I beef with how the Fed's implementing it now. I think things like smacking around decoupled debit when it's something that consumers really like right, is pretty crazy. And then you're seeing the effects of that where the industry now won't touch decoupled debit or fintechs are building it. The networks find out about it, they squash it out. And then you take away this thing that consumers like, right, that doesn't get them in over their head, but it's quasi credit, like it trains them to kind of work like credit. I feel like I need to take a little responsibility given that I am a registered voter in Illinois, making nice Dick Durbin, uh, my senator, and I almost certainly voted for him even back in whatever, 2010. Uh, so I take full responsibility. He's not a bad guy. It just see, looks Sears and Discover in his backyard. I get it, right? I mean, really quickly, something I think that is interesting, and if my history or logic here is flawed, I trust that, that this group will point it out to me, is you know we often hear and think about you know, interchange and particularly on the credit card side rewards as this transfer or cross subsidy from, you know, low income paying in cash or debit to upper income slash upper FICO who are using that Amex card, that Chase Sapphire card, whatever. And this is one of my soapboxes. On the flip side, I think to a certain extent, you see almost the reverse getting enabled by Durban in that you have these interchange-driven neobanks like Chime, yeah. like Current, that most likely otherwise would not exist. And the higher interchange they're able to earn because they're Durban exempt, at least in theory, allows them to offer this no-fee product to customers that otherwise would be getting hit with those min balance NSF overdraft fees. Yeah. The big caveat on this, and, and Matt, you already you know said this, is 
it remains to be seen if this interchange-only model is actually viable. You know, the data points we have, you know, Vero, Money Lion, Dave, you can argue whether, you know, these are comparable, whether they're truly interchange-driven, whatever. But the data points we have are really not promising that it's a viable standalone model. You know, it's, it's interesting because if you think about the cost basis of those things, you should have a large customer service team. If you offshored that, and if you use technology to automate a lot of other things, and if you leaned into IVR, right, which is like the automated when you dial up, they say, how can I help you, right, and things like that to cut down on the number of folks that you need. I think those companies, if they were smaller, would make sense, but not necessarily at the valuations that I think their VC investors pumped money into them at, and so or or their founders necessarily want. So you're saying that uh, Bing slash Sydney, whichever alter ego they can afford, is going to be doing customer service for for Chime, and just don't ask her too many questions, or she'll go off on she'll you. She'll freak out. Well, yeah. So, one... so Jason jokes, but okay, oh, yeah. <laughs> go for it, Alex. No, go, go ahead. <laughs> Oh, Jason jokes, but, you know, uh, IVR is a big thing within the industry. And if you are working with a fintech sponsor bank, and if you're going to do a true blue debit card program, I'm not talking about prepaid, I'm talking like actual debit, they will have SLAs in the back, right, of your well-known fintech debit or DDA sponsor saying, you know, you have to make sure that the phone picks up within X seconds of somebody dialing. You have to make sure they can get a live agent within something like 97% of the time, you know, once they hit that zero button. By the way, if you're going to smash buttons, smash subscribe to this podcast and to the FinTech Layer Cake podcast. You will not regret it because we do not have IVR on either of those. You know, but like you have to build those things, but it's not novel to FinTech, right? And banks use this too. Whenever I call a bank, you know, I bank with a large bank because they offer nice benefits uh, to someone like me. And like, I have a hard time getting through to a human. And it's just the way the industry is kind of moved. I think, you know, if you pair that with, and there's a lot of consulting shops that'll help you move customer service offshore, or if you're, you know, your capital one and you're onshore and you go to Las Vegas, right? You go to like a lower cost market than Tyson's Corner, Virginia, you know, to go do some of those things. I think for these neobanks, if they explored some of those things and if they shrunk their staff down, right, they're not going to create the next great financial service product. They're really copycats of me too. They could have successful, profitable, you know, neobanks, even with or without the charter, right? I think a lot of the larger ones could go get charters. I mean, Square has a charter. SoFi has a charter, right? If you look at them and they're doing well, so. I think the other thing that you guys sort of touch on here that I think is interesting and it, it goes back to what Jason was saying about kind of the difference between credit cards and debit cards to a degree is like, when we talk about interchange, that sort of lumps two different product categories together under one business model. But they are really like fundamentally different product categories. And I think one thing that's an interesting question to kind of poke at from like a competition regulatory, like what options should consumers have in the market is to sort of say that like, checking accounts or bank accounts, I wrote about this recently, they're kind of a foundational financial product that we sort of want everyone to have. And we want them to have at a relatively yeah. low cost. And a debit card, the ability to access that money and use it where you need it, is a part of that proposition, right? Like it's kind of foundational to having a bank account. And so I can sort of see or uh, if you squint, kind of an argument for, look, you know, credit card is its own whole thing. And like, there's different, those are, that's a higher cost product to offer. There's more risk that goes with it. Obviously, there's rewards and sort of a set of consumer behaviors that we're nurturing in that ecosystem. That's very separate from checking account, bank account, debit card, ability to access your funds. And, you know, Matt, to your point, it is interesting to sort of imagine a world where the Durban Amendment and the exemption for banks under $10 billion allowed this little ecosystem to thrive, but we sort of treated it more as like, hey, this is a nice little new area of competition to help sort of underbanked or unbanked consumers get access to these fundamental services. We don't really view them as venture-sized businesses, but it's a nice sort of addition to the market in the same way that community banks are sort of talked about in the US. Yeah, That's obviously not how it's played out, but I do think that that was like a weird alternate universe for the outcomes of Durban Amendment was, let's just carve off this area where no one's going to make a ton of money, but we're sort of making it profitable enough that you can operate in and provide that functional service. No, and I think that's a really good call because the idea behind Durban was, let's help the merchants, let's give them some tools so they can lower their interchange acceptance costs, but also let's preserve revenue streams for community banks. And if you take the view that the fintech companies are basically are what is now evolving to replace community banks, right? Because you have affinity style fintechs, 
replacing geographic style community banks. You know, I think that that's the right view. And especially if you look in the SMB space, right, it's super crowded, but it's also super big. Like Reggie and I both used to work at Bluevine, great company. And they have a very nice small business checking product. So does Novo. So does Mercury, right? Two great lithic customers. And so does Brex, right? Rippling's building something in this space. Like there's a ton of, and I'm sure Deal and Remote and others, if they're not there yet, I apologize. I haven't kept track with them. Like they're all going to build that kind of stuff to Palti, right? They're all getting in and doing SMB cards. And there is actually enough space, right, for them because in some cases what they're eating is they're eating what used to be, you know, community banking. One more note on small business banking that I found interesting. The ABA recently released some like toolkit materials, around if you are a bank and you want to do a special purpose credit program, and I dug a little bit into it, and what they really mean is SMB lending, right? They are starting to put together some materials. So you see the American Bankers Association putting together materials. So basically, banks can arm themselves and compete with these fintechs that are cropping up in the SMB space. And it'll be interesting because I think you'll see more of that, particularly in the neo-banking space. You know, it's funny because I I'm a crypto skeptic, but that's probably the one thing right now because the banking regulators, I think rightfully, won't let the banks touch crypto. That's probably the one thing, you know, that's going to be a competitive wedge driving people to Square or Robinhood or Recurrent or some of these other, you know, larger scaled kind of players. Jason's Googling right now. He's looking in the app store to uh, see which is the best yield. That's a, and that's a callback to the uh, last episode we did where Jason was literally in the app store looking up sort of suspicious fintech companies as we were talking. So this is uh, part of his process. Yeah, I mean, maybe... State regulators we, should listen to that one. Yeah, yeah, we found a couple. Yeah, well, <laughs> from your lips to God's ears, is that the uh, expression? Um, I mean... Maybe eventually we won't be using debit or credit card payments at all anymore mm. if account-to-account uh, -account payments, you know, take off in the U.S. Alex, is this is this ever going to happen? Is there hope? Can you tell me what's going on? That was a marvelous segue for listeners who were looking. Jason just like brought us right to the next topic perfectly. Uh, yes. So account-to-account -account payments, I think, actually is a perfectly great place to kind of go with this conversation because this is the sort of future vision of how this all might work, right? Let's not have cards at all. Let's just connect consumers' bank accounts to merchant uh, bank accounts directly and facilitate these payments. I guess, Jason, let me call on you first on this. This is not an uncommon concept outside the U.S. Like in your backyard, they do this today, right? Yeah. For e-commerce transactions, so basically anything, um, anything that's online and including the Cash App Venmo equivalent, which is called Tiki here, and you do still use it as a <laughs> nice. verb, so I can Tiki you. Underneath the hood, that is being powered by an account-to-account -account payment network called Ideal, uh, and that comprises at least 70%. I think I've seen stats pushing 90%, but at least 70% of e-commerce transactions. You know, I will say, on the one hand, as a consumer, I use this day-to-day, -day, it is really slick UX. The way they've implemented it wouldn't necessarily work in the United States because literally like you go to a merchant, there's a drop down that's like select your bank and there's only like 10 banks in the <laughs> Netherlands. So it's fine. Mm, uh, yeah. And then it shows you a QR code. If you're on your desktop, it'll show you a QR code you can scan with your phone. You've paid. If you're on your mobile device, it'll automatically flip to your bank app. Do you want to accept this payment? Flip back. I will say it, not to, you know, not to be the credit card, debit card network side of things, you know, the one of the drawbacks that you hear is around, you know, consumer protection, payment protection, fraud, etc. Mm. And I actually experienced this. I ordered a projector, or as they say here, a beamer from Bowl, which is like the Amazon equivalent. And they shipped me something that was just like some completely other product. <sighs> it was like a clothing steamer. Oh. And me being me is like, okay, I'm going to go, like they wouldn't pick up the phone. Everything, it was just like not good. I'm like, fine, I'm going to charge this back. And it's like, oh no, this was instant settlement. Like once the money's gone, the money's gone. Mm. You cannot call the network and have them sort of like intermediate the dispute. Your only choice is to go to the merchant. Mm. So an interesting like we're veering off into like, you know, Netherlands uh, cultural bubble here. It's a very high trust society with very low rates of fraud, which I think is part of the reason yeah. why things like 
Maestro on the card network side and Ideal or A to A payments work particularly well in this country because you do tend to see very high levels of trust uh, and low levels of like fraud, chargeback activity, etc. But yeah, the point of this story is uh, A to A payments exist and are in widespread use in plenty of other countries, uh, including the UK. I want to say PIX or PIX-based products in Brazil, uh, UPI-based products in India. It's not like a novel concept. But Alex, what are the barriers to getting there in the U.S.? And and what are the signs of hope? Yeah, I mean, so we've tried this in the U.S. multiple times, right? I mean, I think uh, my favorite recent-ish example was uh, Walmart and MCX and Currency, which was a digital wallet, I suppose, that a bunch of large merchants tried to team up to create and kind of create a a non-car based payment scheme in the U.S. that spectacularly crashed and burned. You'll pick currency over ISIS? I, you know, currency... You'll pick currency over ISIS, which was the failed (laughs) telecom wallet? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, I I read about this in my newsletter, but it's like, there's like one of these ideas that happens, and then it dies, and then its body is donated to the next group that wants to do it, and then they, like, reanimate that body and add a couple things to it, and then it takes a couple steps and dies, and then someone else buys it. So, like, the DNA of, like, ISIS and all of these early ideas still exists somewhere. Is it inside Google, maybe, now? Um... But it's um it's not oh, working, yeah, that's right? Right? Like I think I Google bought like yeah. ISIS stuff, but then they also bought a little bit of stuff from Currency. But then so did Chase. So like these ideas still sort of exist and are germinating in other parts of the industry. But the thing about it that I think I've taken away from it is merchants' desire to cut their payment costs is not a good explanation to give to consumers for why you should use this new payment method, right? And that's been sort of the underlying drive is Walmart's goal to just destroy Visa at all costs. And that as a motivation hasn't worked. I think most merchants don't really care about cutting their payment costs because they don't have that same scale that a Walmart or an Amazon has. That's why Buy Now Pay Later took off, right? Is that it actually helps merchants make more money, not just cut their payment costs. So when we talk about Mm account-to-account payment now, I think that consumer barrier in terms of the experience and giving consumers a reason to use it rather than cards is one. And then the other one, and um, Matt, this will be your cue, Reggie, this will be your cue because I know the scenario you guys think about a lot, is open banking and 1033 and this desire on the part of Director Chopra and everyone over there to increase competition within the market. And I think one angle yeah. of that competition is, can we have an infrastructure that allows consumers to use their bank account details to facilitate more financial financial services experiences and account to account payments is, I think, a pretty obvious one. And so I don't know when we get to sort of a more regulatory driven infrastructure for open banking. Do you see that sort of unlocking account to account payments? Uh, I think there's definitely potential for it. I think that it's going to be interesting to see how the final 1033 open finance rules pan out because I think a big piece of it is like, yeah, you can have bank account info exposed. Like, really, it's, it's more about having people be able to log in easily to their bank account and not have to remember routing numbers or or other things that most people don't have memorized. But the, I think to the conversation around consumer protection, the question is, like, what safeguards are there? Like, how is that done responsibly in a way that consumers will trust? The interesting question in my mind with, with uh, account-to-account payments is, like, if you look at a lot of the key financial regulations in the U.S., there was, like, some catalyzing event uh like in the credit card space we talk about how there used to be active credit cards just mailed out to uh matt always likes to talk about how they were mailed out to you know senators grandkids and that like kind of spurred some reform there and so i think the interesting question in my mind is like yeah there's been a bunch of negative like zell fraud news but at what point does there become enough public pressure to get consumer protections applied to account to account payments and like that tipping point may never come like there's a world in which like we don't have some catalyzing event that's kind of the, the question in my mind because i think a lot of people take for granted those like chargeback and, and other protection rights so yeah w- one other thing which is interesting to think about is uh yes the cfpb is is engaging in rulemaking and um, finally uh, you know after about as jason mentioned dot franks i think about 12 years old at this point you know and there was statutory language that said hey the bureau should look at this and it kind of laid dormant for a long time the interesting thing is, if you think about the rulemaking process, you know, they're probably going to need till the end of this year to put out a proposal. And they probably won't get around to a final rule until the end of next year, so 2024. 
at the potential earliest. And they may do a couple of proposals because you saw this with the Fed, right? Working on pre-Reg Z and then actually doing Reg Z around credit cards. There's a lot of proposals kind of flowing back and forth. They take all FinCEN, same thing. Like that enhanced due diligence rule where now you have to know your business, including the beneficial owners in the US, bringing us up to standard with the rest of the modern world. You know, that took years to go back and forth and kind of finally get finalized. So this is something that will probably take a while and politics, my guess would be, would likely play a little bit of a role in it. Because if you saw Democrats lose the White House, you know, you might see a director Chopra push to finalize the rule before, you know, he potentially would be fired, right? Because I think that that's something now that the Supreme Court allows, um, given some recent case law and things like that. So it's interesting. So if you look at that, you know, you're probably going to see a final rule in 2024. So that's two years from now. They will likely need to give a longish implementation period, especially for smaller banks. So they might come out and tell big banks, hey, you have 18 months to 24 months to get ready for this. So now you're looking at, you know, 2026 for the large banks. And then there could be, you know, potentially, especially if you take a look at some of the things that the Fed used to do around like Reg Y and divestiture of assets and things like that under, under Volcker, you know, you could have phases of five to 10 years kind of after that. So it's really interesting because if you think about the account coverage and where most of us in the US bank, you know, you're likely to see adoption maybe within three to four years. And then it'll probably take a little bit of time for the industry to figure out, well, what do you do with those you know, kind of use cases? So it won't be until the end of the decade, I think, until we really see potentially an explosion of account-to-account payments in the U.S., unless you have merchants and innovative companies kind of band together. Because the, you know, there is kind of a multi-sided ecosystem here of consumers, enablers, merchants, and then you kind of have banks and networks who are on a different side with different incentives, right, with different profit pools, as Alex mentioned earlier. And so it depends on can the merchants and enablers band together and incentivize consumers, because that might be something that kind of pushes adoption earlier. And the interesting thing to see is that if you had a couple of things kind of take off like that, and, you know, PayPal and Square could be good examples of that, you know, you could potentially see them influence and shape the rules because the rules would have to keep up with the industry as opposed to the industry creating the rules, which I think will be really fascinating to see as it kind of go. And so it'll be a really fun, you know, seven to 10 years, I think, of this kind of going forward. And, and something that honestly was one of the reasons why I was excited to go to Trustly because we're going to be right in that space. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they do. One well, And what you just said about like the different participants in the ecosystem kind of taking maybe different stances on it and like, how much do we want to push this? How much do we want to try to get ahead of this? I mean, everything in this thing is timing, yeah. right? It's like these ideas don't make sense. They don't make sense. And then suddenly, because of a number of different changes, they do make sense. And I do think that like even something like buy now, pay later, even though it's a slightly different value problem, position, it does demonstrate that like consumers will pay in different ways. I again, I, I keep going back to this like theoretical 19 year old who has no experience with financial services or buying anything like sure account to account payments makes just as much sense to someone who doesn't know how this stuff works as a credit card or a debit card. So that's fine. Um, Jason, I know you're personally obsessed with this part of the story. But there is at least one big bank that's sort of having some internal discussions, dilemmas, uh, hallucinations about like what account account payments might do and how quickly they should get on board, right? Yeah, I mean, this uh, was covered in some depth. Um, I believe it was by Josh Franklin at FT, like uh, maybe six weeks, couple months back, mm-hmm. that JP Morgan Chase is sort of like internally having this debate slash come to Jesus moment around, you know, acknowledging the threat and expending resources around, you know, potentially building some of the infrastructure that would enable this. I mean, I think I kind of have two thoughts on this. One, you know, Americans love our points. You can pry my rewards card from my cold, dead hands. Chase Sapphire, baby. Um, High-end, high-income Americans love their points. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. Actually, but no, that's not even completely accurate. It's like, even if research suggests that lower FICO and or lower income are net losers, economically speaking, from using these cards, they still love them because they believe that they're getting cash back or they believe they're getting airline miles, even if that's, you know, resulting in inducing them to spend more than they would or carry a balance or what have you. I mean, I think, you know, unlike the other geographies we mentioned, you know, yeah, you have some rewards cards in the UK, but like, they're not very good. I think technically Mm. there's like a KLM Amex here, like no one takes Amex, so there's no reason, you know, to get it. The 
you know, and Alex, you already made this point, but it's like, you know, there's a balance between convenience and incentive. But if you're not, if neither of these things are happening, users definitely won't use it, right? My understanding even of Cash App Pay, and please correct me if I have this wrong, is that even when users pay via Cash App Pay, the merchant is being charged the same interchange. And so that becomes more profitable for Square because it's basically a closed loop transaction that, that Square gets to keep you know, a much higher take rate of. But the user probably doesn't get anything and the merchant doesn't seem to get anything, which may be one of the underlying reasons why that might be a little bit slower on the adoption than it otherwise could be. I mean, in my mind, in the US context, People are willing to whip out their credit card and type in those, you know, 16 digits for their yeah. Sapphire reserve points that they're going to use to book their next vacation. Or more realistically, they have it in Apple card and they'll pay, you know, they'll pay that way and get their points. So even if A to A payments are, let's say, equally or superior in convenience, you still have this rewards hump that you need to get over. And the only way I can imagine that happening is by merchants who, if it's permitted, steer customers to ATA, account-to-account payments, by giving them some kind of incentive that they're funding out of the lower interchange fee. Otherwise, why is anyone going to use it? On the Chase side, and and I will try to tie this back to the prompt you gave me, (laughs) at least per the FT article, you know, the bank felt like it kind of missed the boat on Square and wanted to defend its own existing merchant acquiring business. Here, you know, the threat is what happens if ATA comes and sort of reduces the need or reduces the use of of Chase's huge business, credit cards, and to a lesser extent, debit cards. And there's always this huge disincentive to self-disrupt and self-cannibalize. And it seems like, you know, Chase is acknowledging the risk and spending some resources to develop tech, develop a platform such that if there is widespread adoption, they can win either way. It's an insurance policy, basically. Matt, I can tell you're like lurking on the edge of wanting to jump into some point. You, You look tense. Why don't you comment on that? Oh, you know, well, well, one thing I thought was interesting was Jason's call out around Square. And I think it's early days for Square, which is why you're not necessarily seeing rewards or other things. Although I I will start using it to try it. And then, Jason, I'll definitely send you some screenshots if you're interested for your write-ups. Market research. So you're going to show out. (laughs) That's right. One thing Square has done really well, and they've talked about it on their earnings calls. um, And this was created after I left, so I don't know anything special or insidery about it, is um, their Boost program. And they do this cool stuff where they're like, hey, if you order for the next hour, we'll give you 99% off your DoorDash order. And there's some like fine print about up to X, right? So you can't do $2,000 worth of DoorDash and pay like, you know, whatever that I'm bad at math. So what would it be like 10 bucks or something like that? But the, um, you know, the interesting thing is my guess is Square is trying the cash app pay to see who the early adopters are and why they use it and start to get some of that and also prove the tech out. Right, that you can have because they, when I was there, they were separate te- tech stacks, separate databases, separate everything else. And then they fed into a couple of linking systems for SEC purposes. Right. So the finance team could get the data out and put that into the quarterly filings and the annual filings they had to do since they were publicly traded. So, you know, it's one of those things where if you're thinking about the evolution of those tech stacks, my assumption would be they're still not fully harmonized. Right. And there's probably still some linking systems or bridges between them. And so as you're trying out those things, you know, it makes sense not to go full bore and incentivize consumers. But I wouldn't be shocked if they start turning on incentives in the next little bit, or they might just be seeing natural adoption of it. The other thing I think would be really interesting for Square is if they haven't done it already. And guys, please do this. I'm still a shareholder. If you haven't done this, go negotiate with Visa, who I believe is the card network on the card and go talk to Sutton about running on us transactions because you guys are seeing some great adoption with the Square Cash card and it's foolish you're leaving money on the table. Please, guys, please do this if you're not already. Go run on us transactions. That's why Walmart has their card. That's why Target is their card because when someone shops at the gas station, they get that sweet, sweet Visa and MasterCard interchange. But when somebody shops at their store, they pay zero. And that's part of the reason why you see heavy rewards in those cards. And they really are beneficial for consumers, especially that Walmart card for that consumer segment, because they're not necessarily going to qualify for Chase Sapphire or they won't be able to pay the fees right on that. So they can get, I think it's about 2% cash back on that Walmart card, which is pretty generous 
um, especially if you've got a lower FICO score. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and um, I shout out for people who were messing around with these apps, you know, what, six, seven years ago, but Square actually tried this a yeah. long time ago. Do you guys remember that like card case wallet app is a magical closed payment experience where you could walk into a merchant and you actually paid with your face. You just went up to the merchant and said like, you know, put this on Alex's tab and they had a picture of me because it was geofenced using my phone and the, the GPS. So pretty slick experience, but I think they I think Square Executives at the time even came out after they closed that down and said, we skipped a few steps in trying to make sure we were providing value to get to that closed loop at the end. And so it doesn't totally surprise me that they've been sort of going a little bit slow. But um, speaking of all of this sort of underlying infrastructure that's being built, Jason, what are we going to be doing from a regulatory perspective as we build out all of these new systems and pieces of infrastructure? Talk about a smooth segue. No, mine was way worse than yours. Mine was way worse. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this is a topic I admittedly have a fairly cursory understanding of, although it's getting deeper by the day. I'll admit until about, I don't know, two or three months ago, I had never heard of the Bank Service Company Act because... It sounds really boring, and I have other things I you know, need to do with my life. But that defines some categories of infrastructure providers geared more around kind of like old school think like core banking, Jack Henry, FIS, that actually have some direct regulatory exposure. And I'm actually going to read very briefly the list that is defined in the act of things that would directly fall under the bank service company. I love lists. I'm so excited for this. It's pretty great. So actually, keep in mind this if I looked this up correctly, it was passed in 2010, passed or amended in 2010, and it governs services including check and deposit sorting and posting, computation and posting of interest and other credits and charges, preparation and mailing of checks, statements, notices, and similar items, and other clerical bookkeeping, accounting, statistical, or similar functions performed for a depository institution. I'm feeling like that might be like a little out of date for the modern fintech infrastructure environment we find ourselves in. I mean, the key points that I kind of wanted to think about and talk through, you know, we have all kinds of arguably novel pieces of infrastructure from open banking, so obviously like Plaid, MX, Finicity, payroll data connectivity, which is arguably more complicated because they're sort of more stakeholders, Argyle, Pinwheel, and of course, banking as a service platforms like Unit, Bond, Synapse, Treasury Prime, etc. Not to mention plenty of other areas of fintech infrastructure. You know, uh, sort of two questions, you know, In practice, how are these providers regulated today? And, you know, should that change? If so, how could that change? What would that look like? A lot of different areas we could go with this. I feel like, Alex, I should kick it off to you. I actually would like to take a a pass and hear directly what Matt and Reggie think. I think they're probably put more thought into that. I'll chime in later. But Matt, Reggie, which which one of you guys want to jump in on that one? Reggie. Yeah, uh, happy to kick it off. I think there's this notion that, you know, fintechs aren't uh, subject to prudential regulators overview. And that's just not right. Like your service providers to your bank partner, you are regulated, you just may not get the exact like direct examination request or supervisor request or whatever. And so like, that's a a big healthy part of your bank relationship is like making sure your bank's not going to be caught flat footed. So that that stems from uh, what Jason was talking about, the Bank Service Company Act kind of imposes or creates visibility for federal regulators where they have to kind of report their service providers. So it's like fintechs may not be aware that federal regulators have their name on a roster somewhere of who is working with XYZ banks. So I think that's the first thing that fintechs don't realize they are service providers and there is some like regulatory obligations imposed on them. I think the other interesting one is FSOC, the uh, basically committee created after 2008 to identify systemic risks. And there's been some chatter in the past uh, three, four months, I think some proposed uh, expansions of what FSOC can sweep up with the idea being that like, look, if there's a big player that is creating some kind of systemic risk, like the big headline topic is crypto. Like, are there crypto companies that are just getting big enough that like may not be swept under traditional bank regulations that 
our federal regulators should have purview to come in and say like, hey, we're going to set capital requirements. We're going to do other things. Come and examine you. And I think that the interesting stuff from the past few months is, yeah, there seems to be appetite to expand who can all be included. And I think the third thing that fintechs don't think about, fintech infra companies don't think about, uh, there's definitely been some recent trends with CFPB wanting to increase visibility and CFPB comes at it from a consumer protection and less like prudential safe and soundness regulatory point of view. But the CFPB has kind of been on a tear lately of proposing public registries of fintechs that they can increase their visibility into. So I think like even if fintechs aren't you know, aware that their fintech infrastructure companies think that, you know, federal regulators aren't going to come poke around, they should, you know, educate themselves on that, because I think there's some recent trends, and there are some existing laws and regulations that say otherwise. So Matt, any, uh, any additional thoughts? No, I think, you know, that that definitely encapsulates the high level. The one thing I think I'll be interested to see is at what point do which companies trip into the I have too many bank partners, really bank customers. Mm. And once you have so many bank customers, and I've heard different like kind of rumored, you know, numbers of like you have to have over 100 or 200 or something like that. But once you're actually serving banks as customers, so not just necessarily Plaid where you're pulling data from banks or you're connecting via API and you're doing it on behalf of consumers or on behalf of fintechs or others, but like you are actually serving the banks, you know, the FDIC comes and shows up and says, hi, we want to let you know that you know, we've been thinking about you. We hope you're thinking about us. And, you know, and then uh, politely they say, hey, you know, if, if you need anything, you, you know, you can reach this person, which is actually pretty nice. And we've heard this because our, um, our chief operating officer, Charlie Kroll at Lithic, built a company which had banks as customers and they reached that scale and the FDIC eventually reached out to him. I've heard about, I think it's Bankers Toolbox or Toolkit, if I'm thinking about it right. They hit scale at a certain point. I heard from some folks there and they had the same thing. The FDIC came knocking and said, hi, just so you guys know, you know, you've triggered these thresholds. And so we're going to be, you know, keeping a closer eye on you. And it's not anything bad. It's just like, hey, you could introduce critical risk to banks. And I like that approach because like the FSOC is really like a nuclear option, right? And it was used to capture things that were really outside of the banking system, like GE and the insurance companies, right? Which there is no federal insurance regulator. It's all state level. So you hope the states are doing the right things. And there are a lot of really good state regulators, but obviously AIG still blew up right, as a large insurance company with swaps. You know, Prudential was very large. So that was something that was concerning to folks. I think BlackRock's another one, right, that at one point in time was concerning. And so, you know, if you look at it, the FDIC and the way they kind of take that approach to bank technology and bank enable, and I think makes more sense. The other thing that I think is interesting for listeners um, is a lot of us are probably operating at a scale or working at companies far enough away from the regulatory response units. If the CFPB comes in and comes in to see you because you're a larger participant in, let's say, the remittance market, right, your PayPal or Western Union or something else, they actually take the view, and these companies don't protest, and I don't think they should, that they can take a look at anything. So like, for example, PayPal is a larger participant of the cross-border remittance market, right? There initially were about three, and my guess is now if you take a look at Remitly and a couple of the other kind of newer ones, that there's there's a couple that have joined that club. But so, you know, they can come into PayPal and their, you know, their mandate is to look at those cross-border transfers, but they can also look at small business lending. They can look at the card product. I think PayPal somewhere does some crypto trading, right? They can look at that as well. And so they can kind of come in and take a look at anything, which is good. That's good for consumers. It's good for PayPal. And I think it's good for the industry, but since that's a standard and then these companies tend to export talent right down to smaller companies who then hopefully gain scale. Yeah, well, and I, I think going off of your point, Matt, about uh, kind of the way the FDIC does it where you reach a certain threshold and they kind of knock on your door. Another thing I've been sort of thinking about is the sort of changing nature of fintech companies' relationships with banks, right? So like in the old days, the sort of vendor-driven view of it was, you know, um, we want to impose a certain amount of rigor, not only on the bank directly, but on all of the tech vendors that they work with. And it was really treated like individually, right? Like you pick out your vendors, we're going to then have you pass on a certain amount of diligence so you hold them accountable. But there's an element of like network effects that I don't think we always take into consideration with these things, right? So like using Plaid as an example, Plaid is obviously an individual vendor to a lot of fintech companies, now increasingly some banks, but they also are their own network that has a consumer-facing brand and that has 
products and experiences that come out, not of the individual relationships they have with their different customers, but with the larger sort of network that they've assembled and the transactions and the volume that goes over that network. And I I think that's a really interesting sort of meta challenge, if you will, to regulators is understanding that a lot of these companies can simultaneously be service providers on sort of an individual level where you want to make sure they're good at cybersecurity or they're good at these other things that you're worried about on an individual basis. But they're not just selling software to these companies and then just sitting back and doing nothing. They're using that service that they're providing to those companies as almost a bridge or a wedge to then build a larger product that might have other implications for consumer protection or for safety and soundness or for whatever. So like when we're talking about, you know, different parts of the industry getting together to create like a closed loop account to account payment system, as an example, that's an interesting one where it doesn't really necessarily totally fall on the individual vendor side. It also doesn't maybe necessarily qualify as like some huge existential risk like BlackRock. It's kind of in a a gray area or middle zone. Yeah, no, it's a good call because I think this is where Zelle is able to kind of ride a gap. And it's funny because you have the banks, you know, some of them really vocally complaining about Square and PayPal and regulatory arbitrage, which again, it just cracks me up. Square has a bank. They have an ILC. They do not have the bank holding company status because of the powers of the ILC, but they have a bank. The FDIC has chartered that, right? And has given that deposit insurance. The FDIC can come in and look. The FDIC can come in and poke around the parent if they want to. Right, those types of things, you know, and PayPal has my understanding is they have a bank in Europe, right? So they are a bank in Europe, just like JP Morgan is. And Amazon, I think, has a bank in Europe, right? So you look at some of these things, it's kind of funny that the banks complain about this, but then on the same side, they run Zelle. And like who regulates Zelle? I guess Zelle triggers that threshold. And really, Zelle is run by early warning. Right. So early warning probably is true. The consortiums are a great example of this, right? right. Yeah. These like networks that sort of emerge out of the muck, if you will. Yeah. And it's not a charter holder, so it doesn't fit the typical regulatory model that the federal regulators have. I think at the state level, the regulators are used to seeing non-charter holders because they see it with the money transmission companies. They see things wrapped around and built around a product, and they understand the multiple connections and touch points, and they're really focused on consumer harm, making sure that people aren't losing their money, right? And then safety and soundness so they don't have to clean up a big mess and a big headache. And it's interesting because my guess is that people aren't looking at the capitalization as well right when they come in or the regulators aren't doing that on a regular basis. But I think that's a really interesting kind of question. And then the interesting thing is, to me, Zelle and EWS kind of fit under this umbrella where if you're not going to call Equifax, I think it's a SIFI, right? A, a systemically important financial institution under the FSOC authority. If you're not going to go after Equifax and TransUnion and Experian as bigger credit reporting agencies, right? Then early warnings like, is my checking account good model? If you're not going to go after Visa and MasterCard as SIFIs as larger networks than Zelle, right? Zelle kind of gets to ride in this regulatory underbrush, where I think that's a really interesting thing where, you know, if you look at how the banks leverage Zelle and also these networks run, they don't have the fraud protections that Visa and MasterCard have or offer to cardholders, right? Or really, it's make the issuers offer to cardholders, because that's really what Visa and MasterCard are doing. They're setting up two sides of that network. Whereas with Zelle, if you pay a scammer, sorry, you're out. Right. And it's at the bank's discretion to kind of refund you. So that'll be something interesting. And and I'm a little worried the regulators are too peanut buttered. Right. Like I saw most recently, Graham Steele at Treasury was talking about he's going to look at cloud service providers and like Amazon has all their socks. I think they're up to like socks 73. Right. They probably are out there inventing new statements of controls right around this just to prove that they're better than Azure or Google Cloud or something like that. And we're going to have the Treasury Department look at them right? These large publicly traded entities that have to be battle tested, have multiple nodes, you know, and just have like tons of talent. We're gonna have them look at them as opposed to something like Zelle, right? Which is actually causing consumer harm. So I think that's kind of interesting. Should we, do we have time to wrap it up with uh, our quick special game? We do. Do you want to introduce it? Okay. So as listeners will know, typically Alex and I do what we can't let go of, which I did steal from NPR for the record. But uh, since we have our special guests and we were not able to do it when we appeared on Layer Cake, we're going to do Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where uh, each of us will pick one hypothetical regulator and one hypothetical industry participant we would have to our uh, dinner party for a enchanting, perhaps combative conversation. And I think, Matt, we're kicking it off with you. So pick good and don't pick the people I picked. 
All right, wonderful. I'm going to pick for my industry person, Jackie Rhesus. I worked with Jackie at Square. She is a super fun hang. Also, talk about someone who's super accomplished. She was on the board of the SF Fed. She recently bought Lead Bank in Kansas City, where she's you know taking everything she saw at Goldman, everything she saw at Square, and she's putting that into practice for other fintechs to leverage and use while still reinvesting in that Kansas City community, which is just really awesome to go see. Jackie's just an absolute pioneer. She shatters glass ceilings everywhere she goes. And she's the reason Square has that ILC. I remember Jackie came to me and said, wow, we just went through that negotiation with Celtic Bank. I want more control over the program. What do I do? And I'm like, well, we could get state licenses, but then the product teams are going to throw a fit because you got to go state by state and it's different. We're seeing now with the disclosures, right, that there's slight differences between those states. And Jackie said, no, 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 I want something else. What else can I do? And I was like, well, you could get an ILC. And I remember we were sitting in the coffee cabana at Square and she's like, great, can you help me? I'm like, actually, I'm leaving. I'm going to Stripe. But they you know, they found some great folks. Jackie helped push that through and you know, they made that a thing. And so Jackie's amazing. And I would love to have dinner with Jackie. You know, we had lunch and coffee and stuff like that, but would love, would love to have dinner with her. My regulator is Tim Geithner, just because I think he would have so many stories. He was at the New York Fed when Hank Paulson was trying to figure out TARP and then became the Treasury Secretary as they had to administer TARP and save the financial system. So talk about somebody who was in the room for all the things, right? It would be him or probably Ben Bernanke. And I'm a big fan of Tim Geithner, so I, I'd love to have dinner with him as well. Reggie, you're up. You got extra time to think. I think for uh, industry participant, I'll go with David Villas, the uh, founder and CEO of NewBank, because I just think NewBank is a fascinating juggernaut in kind of online bank, doing like fascinating things, having to do, deal with like cross-border in different countries or whatnot. So uh, fascinating company that I think is doing a lot of interesting strategic stuff. So I'd love to hang with him. And then for uh, regulator, I can go with Hester Peirce, who is a uh, an SEC commissioner, really interesting thinker who typically... She's somebody who's leaned into like using Twitter and other public outlets to like kind of publicly challenge the SEC, uh, other commissioners. And it's been like very, she's a sharp thinker. Like one of the things you encounter in law school the first year is like you read a Supreme Court opinion. You're like, I agree with that. And you read the dissent. You're like, I agree with that. And like, you just don't know what to pick. And she's like, Hester Peirce is a really, really sharp commissioner who does a lot of that like intelligent dissent that you find like, I often disagree with the outcome, but, like, I can't figure out why because she articulates her arguments so well. So I'd love to hang out with her. And she's got a lot of interesting ideas on, like, crypto regulation and kind of, like, capital formation, like, securities, private security offering stuff. So I think it'd be super interesting. How about, uh, how about both of you, Alex and Jason? So I'm actually deviating a little from the rules, and I'm picking a legislator rather than a regulator. And I would pick Sherrod Brown, chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, primarily because when, you know, I've watched a couple of hearings with him over the past year or whatever, and I would like to better understand the grounding of sort of his stance and position, particularly as it comes to fintech and innovation, because often... I feel it is very sort of like backward looking and I, it feels like he's seeking to sort of like turn back the clock and sort of preserve some notion of like the it's a wonderful life community bank that existed yeah. like 10, 20, 30, 50 years mm. ago, which frankly is just unrealistic. So I'd like to have a pleasant maybe two separate dinners, one with him to understand that point of view. And then for an industry participant, for some unknown reason, because I'm a masochist, <laughs> Brian Armstrong, the very outspoken nice. CEO of Coinbase. I mean, as you know, I've probably expressed before, I'm you know 98% crypto skeptic. So I figure I need to yeah. incorporate some time and feedback from people who have differing opinions of me uh, from me. And I figure if anyone, you know, can convince me that it's not mostly just regulatory arbitrage, uh, scams, and you know, sort of like identity expressed as financial product and gambling, he might be able to try to put together a convincing argument. So those are mine. Alex, why don't you uh, round us out? I love yours. And when you um, have dinner with Brian, if you would ask him for me, please, um, if he's still mad at the SEC for blocking the Earn product that they were going to launch, that would be great. I'd love to know the answer <laughs> to that. Um, Spicy. Just, just if it comes up, I'd just love to know the answer to that. So I, I'm going to uh, steal a page out of your book, Jason, and also pick a legislator. Um, mine is the ranking member on the other side of the Senate Banking Committee, Pat Toomey. 
And the reason I want to have dinner with him is because I want to put him in the same room with Esther George, who is um, Mm. the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. And they've been fighting recently, uh, disagreeing maybe on the uh, process that the Federal Reserve has for allowing new non-bank companies specifically to get Fed master accounts. And there was a bit of a a dust up uh, a little while back around um, a particular um, sort of banking-like entity that was involved in crypto that for a moment got a um, master account at the Fed and then uh, suddenly had their master account taken away from them. And I think Senator Toomey rightfully is pointing out that um, that's sort of an opaque and strange process. And really, no one on the outside understands what the heck is going on right now. So I'd love to sit down to dinner with the two of them and just kind of let them fight it out. Nice. I think that is uh, all we have time for this episode, guys. We'll have to like extend this into a third or fourth crossover episode at uh, some future dates. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, as uh, Jason mentioned at the beginning, make sure to go back and uh, listen to the FinTech Layer Cake episode if you haven't. Make sure to smash the subscribe button if you haven't. Reggie also writes an excellent newsletter on all things FinTech regulatory that you should definitely read and um, appreciate the listen. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.